In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Before reflecting on today's readings in our Lord's presence, which speak to us of prayer and of love of our Lord, we can go to the intercession of Our Lady, and specifically Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which we celebrated yesterday. The memorial of Our Lady of Mount Carmel is celebrated every July 16th in the Church's calendar. And Mount Carmel is a helpful image, a helpful title of Our Lady, precisely for prayer. The Carmelites are inspired by the tradition of prayer in the Old Testament, when the prophets would go up on mountains, like Mount Carmel, to be near God, to be alone with God. And a great tradition of contemplative prayer comes to us precisely through the Carmelites. Great saints like St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, are part of that tradition. The whole idea of meditation and contemplation gained a new strength, a new impetus in the church through their lives and through their teaching. Mount Carmel has a special place in my heart, in Our Lady of Mount Carmel, because my mother's name is Carmel. And so I can ask you to say a little prayer for my mother as we pray together here today. Today's gospel helps us so much. We've considered it many times in our prayer. Jesus entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. It's so good for us, Lord, to see your nearness, your closeness to your friends, Martha and Mary. Their brother Lazarus is not mentioned explicitly in this passage, but we know that he formed part of that family. And Jesus, you come to them, you enter their village, and then you enter their home, and you receive their hospitality. You come to stay with them, to be with them. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of our Lord's disciples, those first Christians, we can imagine that among the disciples, there was a kind of holy jealousy, a holy envy of this family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Because the Gospels indicate to us that this was not a one-off visit, that Jesus had a kind of habit of visiting these, his closer friends. We see him visit other homes, but they seem to be one-time occurrences. He goes to Matthew's house after calling Matthew. He goes to the house of Zacchaeus after calling Zacchaeus down out of the tree. He visits Simon the Pharisee, and that sinful woman comes and professes her sorrow to him in that beautiful way. But with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, this seemed to be like a regular thing, that whenever he was traveling to or from Jerusalem, he would stop in Bethany, 
to be with them and to rest with them, to visit them for a while. And so we can imagine, Lord, that many of the other disciples felt the kind of holy jealousy, holy envy at this special relationship you had with them. They might have thought to themselves, lucky, they're so lucky. And perhaps also on their part, not perhaps, I'm sure this was the case, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus felt very privileged. They felt a kind of holy pride, a great joy and blessing to know that Jesus loved them in a way that was special, in a way that was intimate, that he liked to be with them and he would come to them, he would come to them to spend time with them. And Lord, this is your church and this is each one of us. Perhaps not all of us are as aware of it as we could be, as we should be, but in a way we're all special to our Lord. We're the ones that he comes to stay with, to the exclusion of others. Why, Lord? Because as you come into this village and then you come into this home, so too in the church, especially in the Blessed Sacrament, you enter the village of the world, you enter the village of the church, and you enter the home, you come even closer to where we live and pray and spend our time. You enter the home of our parish churches, the home of our chapels and oratories. And you stay with us. You stay with us in the Blessed Sacrament. And then spiritually, Lord, we know that you enter the abode, the home of our souls and of our lives. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John. If anyone will love me, he will keep my commandment and my Father, and I will come to him and make our abode with him. If we love our Lord, if we're in the state of grace, the Father comes with the Son, and they dwell with us, they live with us. Just as Jesus stays with Martha and Mary, just as Jesus stays in the tabernacle, he stays very close to us in the spiritual life, very close to us in the state of grace. I remember a number of years ago seeing a news story about Steph Curry. Steph Curry as many of you know, is one of the greatest basketball players of our age, perhaps of all time. He's won multiple NBA championships. And the story was that he visited a basketball camp in California. And it was a surprise visit. The campers didn't know he was coming. And so the news show showed this delightful clip where Steph Curry's walking down the hall of this dormitory where the campers are staying. And he knocks on the door of a camper. And the camper opens the door and is not expecting, of course, to see this incredible basketball player, this idol of his, most likely. And he opens the door and he sees Steph Curry standing there in the doorway smiling. And it's this little boy, he's about, I don't know, 10, 11 years old, something like that. And he looks up and he sees Steph Curry and this big smile breaks out across his face. And then there's like this strange look on his face. And then he puts his hands to his heart and faints, (laughs) collapses in the, in the doorway. And Steph kind of grabs him and, you know, helps him so he doesn't hit his head or anything. But he was so 
overwhelmed, overjoyed at what he was seeing, so surprised by this visit that he couldn't take it, right? He passed out. It totally blew him away. And this is the sense that we should have something like this about you, Lord, about your presence in the tabernacle, about your presence in the world, your presence in my life, that you've you've come to my room, to my home, to the home which is my life and my heart. Just as you come to that village and enter that home. She had a sister named Mary who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. There's a lot to reflect on here. And perhaps we can just reflect first on our Lord's appreciation of Mary's attention. Mary welcomes our Lord by giving him her attention. She sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. And this is an image, of course, in the first place, of our prayer life. The proper response to Jesus' nearness to us, the proper response of God's nearness to us, is to give him our attention. And prayer is an essential way to give him our full attention. And so in addition to doing God's will, doing all the things that we know that God wants us to do, which include work and rest and socializing, our life as such, we also need to have time where we just focus on God, where we just sit and appreciate his presence and look at him. And yes, we'll talk to him, we'll unburden ourselves, we'll ask for a million things, but also we need to have this receptive, silent, listening attitude where all we're doing is attending to God with our heart, with our mind, with our soul. Simone Weil, a famous 20th century philosopher, once wrote that attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. To give someone our full attention, to totally focus on them and attend to them, is a great act of love. And it's generous. It's not easy because our minds tend to be scattered and they tend to be distracted and they tend to be worried about things and ourselves and our family. So to give someone our full attention is a great act of love, a great act of generosity. So our Lord appreciates this form of hospitality that Mary shows him, giving him her full attention. The first reading gives us a parallel passage where we see Abraham receive the Lord into his home. It's a mysterious appearance of God in which God appears not as one person, but as three men. Obviously, this is one of the great foreshadowings of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament from the book of Genesis. 
The Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth of Mamre, as he sat at the entrance of his tent. While the day was growing hot, looking up, Abraham saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to greet them. Bowing to the ground, he said, Sir, if I may ask you this favor, please do not go on past your servant. Let some water be brought, that you may bathe your feet, and then rest yourselves under the tree. Now that you have come this close to your servant, let me bring you a little food, that you may refresh yourselves, and afterward you may go on your way. The men replied, Very well, do as you have said. It's a beautiful passage and a mysterious one, even though there's three men there. The Bible tells us that the Lord appeared to Abraham in the singular, not the plural. And then Abraham, addressing the three men, uses at least once a singular form of address. Sir, if I may ask you this favor, please do not go on past your servant. And so even though there's three there, they're referred to as one, which is, again, a kind of foreshadowing of the mystery of the Trinity, that God is three persons in one being. But what a beautiful entreaty of Abraham. Rest here. Let me refresh you. Let me bring you some food and some water that you may bathe your feet and sit under the shade of this tree. Now that you're here, stay a little bit. Stay a while. And this is a great attitude for us to foster in our prayer, that our prayer is a kind of home for God. It's a resting place for God. With our attention, with our devotion, with our commitment to prayer, the time that we put into it, we welcome God. We tell Him that we're happy that He's with us. We're happy that He's here. And we ask Him to stay and to make Himself comfortable. And it takes some work. Abraham hastened into the tent and told Sarah, Quick, three measures of fine flour, knead it and make rolls. He ran to the herd, picked out a tender, choice steer, and gave it to a servant who quickly prepared it. Then Abraham got some curds and milk, as well as the steer that had been prepared, and set these before the three men. And he waited on them under the tree while they ate. So it's not just a matter of wanting to be welcoming, but taking all the steps necessary to make them welcome, to prepare the bread, the rolls that his wife Sarah makes, to pick out the steer and to have the servants prepare it, to go and get the curds and the milk that he can serve with the steer that's just been prepared. And all of that is an image of our prayer life in order to be welcoming, in order to give God that gift of our attention, we have to make it happen. We have to find a time. We have to find a place. We have to bring a book that helps us keep focused on God. We have to make the effort to put our souls in order, to recollect ourselves, to calm our minds down in order to attend to God. And that effort is a sign of love, a sign of appreciation of who's with us. And an indication, an indication that we want to be with him, that we want to respond properly to his presence. The response of Martha is criticized by our Lord. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, 
Do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. What is our Lord criticizing in Martha? I don't think, Jesus, that you're criticizing the fact that she's working and and not praying. The gospel indicates to us that it's more of a criticism of her interior attitude, of her interior state. Martha burdened with much serving. Another translation of that word burdened is distracted. You're distracted with much serving. And then our Lord calls her anxious and worried. And one of the words for anxious or worry used here in the, in the New Testament in the original Greek, has as its root a word that means divided. To be worried in Greek, in the language of the New Testament, to be worried or anxious is to be divided. And division is a wonderful way of thinking about distraction. Right When we are distracted or worried, our attention is divided. Or we're thinking about something that has happened before that's bothering us, or we're thinking about some fear in the future that is bothering us. And so our attention is pulled away from the present moment, pulled away from the people that we're with, pulled away from prayer or the task at hand to something that's not there. By our thoughts, by our fretful and fearful thoughts about the future, about the past, about ourselves. And so Jesus really is criticizing not so much Martha's work, but rather Martha's soul, right? <laughs> her lack of unity, her distraction, her worry, her being a soul that's divided and therefore not able to attend and to put its, to put her attention into him or into what she's doing out of love for him. There is need of only one thing. As our Lord puts it, only one thing is necessary. What is that one thing that's necessary? What is Jesus talking about? Well, at first glance, and there's a large tradition of this interpretation in the church, and it's a good one. It's not, it's not a bad interpretation. At first glance, given the context, we could think, well, the one thing necessary is prayer. Our Lord is clearly preferring the attitude of Mary, which is so prayerful and is a form of prayer. She's just sitting there listening to God and looking at God in Jesus Christ. While Martha is not praying, right? She's, <laughs> she's very clearly busy and working. And so there's a long tradition of the church which says, well, this passage is indicating to us that prayer and the life of contemplation is better and more important and objectively superior to activity or to work. And so many people draw the conclusion from this that like religious contemplative vocations are in themselves kind of objectively holy or objectively superior to the lay state or um, other more active ways of life or active vocations. 
And I'm not going to dispute that. I think there's, again, there's a long tradition of that interpretation. But if we think about what Jesus says, there's only one thing necessary. One thing necessary. Well, that can't be just prayer. He's not, he's not saying that prayer is the only thing that's necessary. Why? Because it contradicts other things that he says in other places, right? He's asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? What do we have to do? What's the one thing that we have to do to have eternal life? It's the greatest commandment in the law. And what does Jesus say? We know he says charity. He says, this is the great, this is the greatest commandment that you love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so from that passage, we get the sense that, well, the, the one thing necessary is love, is charity, a love of God above all things, and the love of neighbor as ourselves or as Jesus loves us. The passage in St. Matthew, where our Lord talks about the final judgment, he doesn't mention prayer explicitly. He says, the sheep get into heaven because they minister to the needs of their neighbor and what they did to the least of these, their brethren, they did to him. What you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. And those who don't go to heaven, who go to hell, are condemned because what they didn't do, what they failed to do to the least of these, their brethren, they failed to do to him. And so from that passage, too, it seems like the one thing that's absolutely necessary for salvation is love, is love of our neighbor, service of our neighbor, and love of God in our neighbor. So it seems like charity, right, love of God in the first place, and then love of others, given the full context of the, of the teachings of our Lord of the gospel, that charity is the one thing necessary. In other places, of course, Jesus combines these. He says, if you love me, or if you love God, you will keep my commandments, you will do what I say. And this is my commandment, that you love one another. Another very clear indication that the one thing necessary is not just the activity of prayer, but rather the virtue of charity. Now, the virtue of charity, very importantly, <laughs> includes prayer. So, even if we conclude that charity, love of God, and love of others is the one thing necessary and not prayer, a kind of corollary or a sub-conclusion would be something like this. Prayer is necessary for charity. Right? If we don't pray, we don't love God above all things. And if we don't pray, we won't have the grace and the capacity to love others for the love of God or to love others with the love of God, which is love for our neighbor. And so what Martha is doing wrong is not so much that she's not actually physically praying right now, but rather that she's letting her, her anxieties and her worries keep her from loving, keep her from recognizing the presence of Jesus in her home and responding to it with the attitude of the generosity of attention, the generosity of recognizing how special it is that he's there. And what Mary is doing right takes the form of prayer, but it's really love, right? It's really 
that her attention is on the right thing, in the right way, that she's not lost in some worry or some distraction or some foolish thoughts. And that's a deep, I think, and important insight for us. Attention is the rarest form of generosity, as Simone Weil says. Attention is the purest and rarest form of generosity. It's a form of love. And we have this in our experience. It's interesting. It's like, well, when are you the most focused? When are you the least distracted? Well, I would say that it's it's usually when you're doing something that you love, something that you really delight in, something that captivates your heart and your attention. And it might be something that's really, you know, just entertainment or that's not that important. But nevertheless, that experience is an important experience to reflect on. It's like, why can I watch hours and hours of my favorite TV show? Well, because I love it. It captivates my attention. And when I do it, I'm fully immersed. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just totally into this character, totally into the storyline, totally into the cinematography or whatever. Or why can I read this book for hours and hours and just lose myself in it, not think about anything else? Well, it's because I love it. Right? I love the story. Again, I love the characters. I love the way he, this author writes. Or why can I go to the gym? And really lose myself in exercising or go for a run and, and not think about anything except the fact that I'm alive and moving and running. Be totally focused. Well, it's because I love it. I love that experience or I love, I love that activity. And so love, whether it's activities like that or people, or if we're in the presence of someone who's very important to us and someone we haven't seen in a while. And someone who plays an important role in our life in some way. Perhaps a relative we haven't seen in a while and we're very close to. Or perhaps an important figure like, I don't know, the Pope or the head of our religious institution. And they visit and we're with them in a small group or we're with them one-on-one. Well, we're focused, right? Our attention is on them. We're not distracted. We're not checking our phone. We're not thinking about other things. We're soaking in every word of that friend or that person, and we're totally attentive to them. And so love, love unites our soul, right? Love overcomes distraction. And so to love our Lord and to react well to his presence in our life, his entering the village of our church, his entering the home, of our parish and our tabernacle. Lord, you're entering the home of my life. To love you, Lord, requires attention and it calls forth attention. And this happens both in prayer in what Mary is actually doing, giving him her full attention, but it should also happen in work. Jesus doesn't say, Martha, stop working. He tells her, Stop being anxious and worried. Stop being divided. Stop being burdened by what you're doing. Because there's only one thing necessary. Love. Right? Do all that of, out of love and you'll be fine. Right? Do it with the spirit of Mary. Do it attending to me. And that's how Abraham does it. Right? Abraham does all this work. He goes and he, and he asks for Sarah's help. And he goes and he selects 
the steer and commands the servant to prepare it. He goes and prepares himself the curds and the milk to serve with the to serve with the beef. <laughs> and uh, he's doing all this stuff, but he's not distracted, right? He's he's focused, he's motivated by the presence of God. I'm doing all this for God. I'm doing all this so that I can serve God, so that I can attend to God. And so to work with focus is to work with love. And to love is to work and to pray with focus, with our full attention. And it's so beautiful, Jesus, that you unite these two things. What you've done for the least of these, my brethren, you've done for me. So attending to other people, putting our mind fully into our work and our service for other people is a way of being Mary, not just of being Martha, but of being Mary. To give other people our full attention with our faith, aware that God is somehow in them, is also to give God our full attention. And we can do that not just by praying for them, not just by by prayer, but also by acts of service, but also by our work. So Lord Jesus, we ask you for this grace. Unite my attention. I don't want to be divided, distracted, anxious, or worried. I want my heart free to love. Free to love you in my prayer, free to love others in my friendships and in my work. And for that, Lord, I need your help because I am distracted. <laughs> and sometimes we, sometimes we, um, we settle for false forms of contemplation. And so scrolling, you know, unnecessary consumption of entertainment or information in a way, is kind of a false form of contemplation. The true form of contemplation is love, attention that's motivated by the presence of people that we love. A kind of surrogate contemplation is losing ourselves in distraction or losing ourselves in frivolous pleasures. And that's fine for rest, and it's fine for kind of cultural development. I'm not saying don't read your favorite book a lot or don't watch your favorite TV show. But don't let that be the primary source of your undivided attention. Or don't let that be the only place in which your attention is totally united on something you love. Because that rest or that entertainment or that cultural enrichment is not an end in itself, right? The end in itself is charity is to love God above all things, to love others for his sake or love others as he loved us. And so unless that's, unless, unless that's getting our full attention, unless that's getting our, our generosity of cutting other things out and of uniting our soul, well, then we're kind of like putting pearls before swine. And if the only thing that gets my full attention are rest and entertainment and kind of frivolous, you know, more or less frivolous pursuits, well, then I'm putting pearls before swine, right? This ability to attend, this ability to love, this ability to focus is meant for God and it's meant for others and not just for wordle <laughs> or, uh, I don't know, tombstone or whatever you're watching. We go to Our Lady, Our Lady of Mount Carmel. How many times Our Lady attended to our Lord? 
watching him sleep, watching him pray, serving him at table, helping him in his work, helping him in his public life. How many times Our Lady's soul was united in a great act of generosity by her attention, her love of her son. Our Lady, our Mother, help us to do this, to unite our soul so that it can focus totally on God in our prayer, in our work, and in our friendships. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect, my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.